and welcome to the Company Watch On The Spot podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Financial and Commercial Risk Analyst. Welcome, Nick. Good morning, Joe. We are recording today's episode in the morning of Monday, the 4th of July. And our headline topic um, today is really looking to see if there is light at the end of the tunnel, or if in Nick's rather pity phrase, the light that we can see is actually a speeding train coming in the other way. And with a spoiler alert, we, we worry that it, it could well be the latter scenario. I think the first thing we'll look at today are the comments um, from the ECB summit that was held last week in um, Portugal, where we had the good and the great of central bankers um, on a panel. Uh, we had the, Fed, um, the Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell. We've got the ECB President, Christine Lagarde. Um, the Bank for International Assessments, um, Augustine Carstens, and our own Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, talking on a panel. Now, it's about an hour and a half long. I've listened to, 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 to various bits of it, and I, I think it is worth um, perhaps sending a link out because it's, I mean, frankly, jaw-dropping. My takeaway was, you know, goodness me, these are the people that are in charge of of like sorting out this almighty mess that we're in. Um, and the the the, the big takeaway quote was from Jerome Powell, who says that now we understand better how little we understand about inflation. Oh, it's the knowns and unknowns of Donald Rumsfeld all over again, isn't it? How wonderful, the unknown unknowns. Yeah, so I mean, Bailey really didn't say a lot I mean but he said it, it was one of those that one of those things actually reading the the commentary afterwards was a lot more helpful because listening to it you had to really kind of pay attention and unpick the um the the kind of diplomatic speak and Nick I think you've you've had some um, yes some interesting I mean, look at the comments around around what Bailey yeah said. the the because uh, his headline quote that uh comment that everybody picked up in the in the media was um and, I, and I, I quote, whether I quote him or I quote um, the Telegraph, I'm not sure. Um, inflation to hit UK harder and stay higher for longer. And there's some really fluffy, woolly stuff going on in, in his comments about, oh, well, they've noticed a change from, from, um, su- from su- su- you know, COVID-related price pressures and supply chain pressures to something something very different in the in the wake of Ukraine and what's going on in China. And interestingly, news this morning that there is a serious outbreak of COVID in the region in China next to Zhangzhou, which is the second biggest commercial and industrial hub in China. Oh my goodness! And the zero COVID yes. policy is still in place, isn't it? So that will oh, have I mean, likely. They'll shut impact. it down. They'll shut um, it down again for you know anything between three and three, three weeks and eight weeks. Um, what I found interesting and much more informative than anything that Andrew Bailey said in Portugal were some comments on the Today programme the next day from um, a, and forgive me, I didn't catch the name, the um, an economist from HSBC, who pointed out three factors in why Andrew Bailey might be saying that. The first, um, which is sort of counterintuitive in a, in a way, and certainly you bridled at it, Joe, when we were talking just now. Um, uh, she said, you need to remember that the UK imports more of its energy needs than many comparable economies, mm. but mainly because it hasn't invested as heavily or certainly as effectively in nuclear power as, for example, France. Mm. 
you know, where you've got EDF, which dominates not just yeah. France, but Europe and, uh, and beyond. Um, it, she also went on to say that uh, the UK imports more of its food requirements than other comparable economies. And those two factors are clearly playing into the, the inflation doom loop that we're in at the moment. And of course, the third factor, which we flagged up last uh, last week, and we're going to keep on coming back to today and no doubt in the future, it's the continued weakness of sterling against the US dollar and now increasingly also the euro. Yeah, and that's a big, a big issue when when we're relying on imports, um, as we are. As you say, I mean, I need to, I need to have a look at that, drill down into those those figures. Mm. Um, but you know, there's no reason to to really disbelieve um, to, to leave that comment. And I think that isn't necessarily being being brought out in some of the mainstream media that this idea yeah. that you know we're not reliant so much on Russian gas and we've got quite a lot of uh, we do quite a lot of liquid gas don't we and we can actually kind of re-gasify liquid gas and send that to, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. to Europe but clearly there's a lot of other um, other factors in play here I think the other thing that um, you know Bailey was invited to talk about the impact of Brexit um, <laughs> on his um, assumption that the assertion that the UK would be would be more impacted in fact is in at the moment being more impacted than other economies um and he said well you know it's very hard to separate brexit from covid but he went on to say that the bank of england has has been putting in its um forecast for some time now the the impact of, of brexit that there would be a drop and that over the longer term period this would be um recovered and he said well there's no reason to um to doubt that that is the analysis that still goes on so yes there is an impact of of Brexit and um, you know the Bank of England sticking to their story that it's hard to separate. Now you're going back to your point, Nick, about this um, this the difference in the makeup of the inflation between you know from from where it was a COVID supply issue to being now the impact of war. What I thought was really interesting about his comment on that was that he said in the last month we've seen these structural changes. Yes. Now the war in Ukraine has been going on since February. February. And if if he's only saying, well, now we're starting to see, see those strikes, that really rang alarm bells to me in terms of well, what on earth is coming coming down the line. We had we've had news this morning about food um, prices as well, yes. and that that's only really seeing the beginning of that um, inflationary um, hit to, to food prices. So I really took away that you know with the with Jerome Powell's comments about we we don't don't really know very much about inflation but you know <laughs> oh, there, there is dear. really a lot more a lot more <laughs> to um still to come we we we're, we're really nowhere near the end of of um the inflationary issues yes and 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 of course this is all very neatly um uh, sort of illustrated the following day after 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 this strange strange bit of sort of co- collective um I don't know what's the word. Um, uh, anyway, co- co- collective failure to grasp the issues, um, and the the ONS published the UK's balance of payments data for Q1, and the underlying trade deficit, which excludes precious metals, and and for a reason I'll come back to in a moment. Um, that in Q1 22 was 44.2 billion, which equates to 7.1 percent of GDP. And that is the joint record high since 1997. If you include precious metals, it was 51.7 billion, 8.3% of GDP, which would have been the biggest, is the biggest number ever. But the ONS does go on to explain that uh, movements on precious metal trading um, are very volatile, which is why they published 
data, you know, with precious metals and without. But there's another big caveat, isn't there, to this this data? Yes, (laughs) they they also say, oh, by the way, we've changed the the data collection methodology, so the figures might be distorted. Oh, hallelujah. Great. But just Um, at this point when these these numbers are so critical, and we're going to have to wait for another quarter, aren't we, really, to get a sense of of the kind of comparable numbers, you know, with this new methodology? That's right. Now, now, um, ONS points out that... Uh, what's created this is a big rise in the imports of finished and semi-manufactured goods, which I suppose reflects that brief period of optimism you know, post-Christmas and up to Ukraine, yeah. um, when people were beginning to spend more money and felt that the whole thing was over. Um, and there was, of course, uh, they, they say it's a big rise in imports of, of manufactured goods, a smaller but nonetheless significant um, fall in the export of goods. And I wonder what might have caused that. Now, the the reason why this is a a bother is because it feeds directly through into the value of sterling, uh, which, of course, is now between 10 and 11% down so far this year against the US dollar. Uh, And what you've got to remember is that balance of payments deficits are financed by capital inflows from overseas. And in Q1 22, the level of direct foreign investment in the UK was 159 billion. It's a lot of money. Um, And uh, there is general commentary around um, these numbers and, and and those individual stats that that could be the reason why there appears to be a a rather unseemly scramble by the Treasury to talk about um, uh, they're looking at ways of reducing business taxes. Because, of course, high business taxes or relatively high business taxes is a huge huge disincentive, huge disincentive to invest in in the country. So I think those are pretty grim numbers um and we'll again as as we keep saying on this podcast we have to see where these figures go mm-hmm. and whether they turn out to be an aberration or um a really uh, a really worrying um worrying trend new trend now one of the things that i think is really um interesting that that you've also picked up on that is kind of all all connected with this is productivity because you know we've said time and again that that really the way out you know really if you want to kind of grow the economy significantly you need to invest in in productivity gains and that's that's really where um and, and you know even more so given the the labor sh- shortages that we we have and that kind of that that mismatch of the labor market that we have in in the UK really if you can get productivity levels um higher then then that can really be helpful for growth now you you picked up on a, a, a fascinating piece in the times yes and, and and before that um uh, it turns out there is a book out which i don't think um, most people will have read unless they have severe insomnia problems. And it's uh, co-written by um, a gentleman called Jonathan Haskell, who I think has either has been or is still a rate setter at the Bank of England, and by um, the Royal Statistical Society. And they were looking specifically at the lack of investment business investment in what they call the intangible economy. So that's patents, research, software. And they came up with this sort of slightly startling two bits of data. And um, one is that between, and, and, and there seems to be, and we'll come back to it with the t- 
Times comments, um, a watershed moment with the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the, this book shows or states that between 2007 and 2019, the UK's failure to invest in papers, research and software as much as the Americans did has probably reduced GDP by not growth by 0.5 percent a year and resulted in a loss uh, which I think is this must be a GDP calculation a loss of 2,144 pounds per household but they then go on to point out that if you look at the ONS numbers uh, and you exclude government investment so this is UK private business investment is now down by more than a third on pre-Brexit levels. Wow. And this is and this is still recent. So this is fairly recent numbers. So I think we we Maybe. saw that in the um yeah. in the Bank of England's most recent report, how yeah. government spending is basically holding up the business investment. And that isn't necessarily good, well, isn't definitely not a good no. thing. If that if the, if the government investment is at the expense of private um investment. Yes, and you're also assuming that the government is any is any good, is good? Um, well. any good at in, in investing effectively. And there's nothing in my 50 years of looking at what the what the government does when it spends money that tells me that that has suddenly changed from before. Anyway, let's move on, and it's linked um, to this article by David Smith, who's one of the most respected um, economics and business commentators, who was writing yesterday, Sunday, uh, in the Sunday Times. And and the headline on on a very long and detailed uh, piece. It's behind a it's behind a paywall. Might be worth sending a link out. We send a link absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and the 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 article is entitled very sort of provocatively, "One Crisis Killed Productivity," and they're talking about the global financial crisis. Will this one resurrect it? <clears throat> now. What he goes on to then feature is some quite extraordinary analysis about the history of productivity in the UK since the Second World War. And he points out that in the sort of 30 years after the Second World War, what we call the, the golden age for the world economy, UK productivity, if you measure it per, uh, by output per hour worked, grew by an average of 3.6% a year. That's amazing. Sort of broadly what GDP growth was mm-hmm. as well. Then you get the global financial crisis, 2008. And as he puts it rather graphically, the lights went out. Productivity growth between 2008 and 2020 averaged just 0.5% a year. And if you were to shift that time frame to go back to 2007 and only go as far as the pandemic, the end of the pre-pandemic year, 2019, the growth is only 0.2%. And you know, as he goes on to say, for those who are interested in economic history, this is quite something. Productivity growth in the UK in the years since the financial crisis has been weaker than at any time since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And that's what we're going into the current situation with. With that history, yeah. With that history. Yeah. And, and, and what he then goes on, and you know, we can talk endlessly uh, about the content of this article, better to read it, I think, is to, uh, he's 
questioning whether the labor, the, you know, the grotesque shortage of labor, what you know, whatever the causes of it are, it's out there. Whether it's you know the, the great retirement or whether it's you know um Euro- Europeans um, going going home in a huff post-2016, um it does not matter. The answer is we have we have severe labor shortages everywhere. And what he is saying is, does that mean that businesses will be forced to find other ways of being productive, whether it is AI, whether it is robotics, however they are going to do it? And that chimes very neatly because that, of course, costs money. Mm. It costs a lot of money. And it involves confidence, doesn't it? People do not invest, even if they have money, people don't invest if they're not confident about, you know, being able to generate a return on that investment. And, you know, there's there's a lot of lot of stuff around the confidence. And how do you get confidence? It's hard, but you kind of do look going back, looping back to kind of Andrew Bailey and the great and the Mm. good of the ECB. You are looking to leadership. Yes. In a way, uh, people you can have confidence in that that um you know won't change rules. I think there's lots of comments on you know how how central banks have kind of changed rules and wanted to be easing all those those other things. No, um, and, and, it, and it chimes absolutely perfectly because on Friday the Institute of Directors published their latest um index of economic confidence. And this is business confidence, you know, forget mm-hmm. consumer, this is business yeah. confidence. And the index, they seem to do it every other month. So in April, the index was minus 45. In June, it was minus 60. And that's the lowest since the since the immediate impact of COVID in early 2020. So I do ask the question, in that situation, who's going to invest? The brave ones will. And there will be great benefits for those that have the courage to do it. Um, for many, I think there'd be an awful lot of sitting on sitting on hands and saying, you know, we won't risk scarce working capital resources on long-term in, long-term investment and, and what will be in many cases a significant change in the business model at a time uh, when there is so much uncertainty. Yeah, and when there's no end, there's no sign of the end of inflation. All these other, all these other, um, these these things, and and nobody really is giving any any hope on on that front. Nick, thank you very much for um, for the the work. I think there's is kind of a few different topics, but we all seem to be um, they all seem to be coming together um, to to really be painting a picture of of ongoing uncertainty. And you know, as we always say, looking at risks, looking at individual risks again is is one way of 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 trying to kind of keep on top of this because there seems to be so there's so many other factors and 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 moving parts um that holding on to um holding on to kind of individual risk risk checking i think is is the way to um to approach things at the moment so until next time nick thank you very much thanks everybody for listening goodbye bye